I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Cadet Captain David Sean in TAPS. I have to tell you, Alistair, this movie was not what I expected by a long shot. What did you expect? Let's I, begin there. I expected a boarding school drama. Like, I thought Check. military school. Check. I thought, Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> I thought, you know, it's going to be like school ties. It's going to be sure. like Dead Poet Society. It's going to be like a coming-of-age tale for these young men who are thrown together. I, I just was not expecting this, like, Lord of the Flies almost docudrama feeling that we ended up with. Yeah, yeah. You ended up with something that is more like school ties crossed with Red Dawn or Toy Soldiers. Or sure. One of these, you know, much more heightened, much more explosive, literally and metaphorically, uh, yeah. films. Did you enjoy Taps? Let's, let's headline this podcast episode here on The Last Star in Hollywood, your podcast about the filmography of Tom Cruise. Did I enjoy it? I liked it. I thought it was good. Enjoy is a weird word. Like, it's not an enjoyable film, I would say. It's very difficult to watch and very challenging. But I thought it was very well made. I thought it was good. That's an interesting distinction. I think that there's a lot in this film that I actively enjoyed. But you're right. Really? There's a difference between how you feel in the moment and your opinion on something coming out the other side. Yeah. how How it sits in the memory and how you reflect on it intellectually after the fact rather than emotionally in the moment of, of experiencing the film. So you hadn't heard of TAPS before beginning this podcast project? No, not at all. I knew it was the next one on our list, and I knew that it was military school, and that's the end of what I knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really went in completely cold. As did I, which yielded me, gave me, gifted me a really interesting perspective on this early phase in Tom Cruise's career, because one of the reasons that we're doing this entire podcast, one of the reasons that we decided on Cruise as a subject for The Last Star in Hollywood is his iconicity. It's the way that he represents masculinity. It's the way that he represents a kind of romanticism, a kind of physicality, the way that he represents, above all things, perhaps, Americanism. Sure. And the way that he is so often representative later in his career of American militarism. And here mm. he's giving an entirely different performance. This is yeah. this is a fascinating insight to me into the career that never was. This is an insight into Tom Cruise, the character actor. What if he had been stuck doing interesting character roles for his career and mm. not turned into the leading man that he is very soon going to turn into? Yeah, yeah. Was Cruise good in this film? I think so. He started out maybe a little bit rough for me. Like, maybe it's just because I... I now associate him with certain kinds of roles. So when he comes trying to be like the dick swinging, like swaggering bully kid, it's just hard for me to buy, especially when his first line is, hey, you're going to play Dungeons and Dragons with us later. And then he turns out to be like the machismo guy. Not with us. He's teasing Sean Penn's character there. Oh, now I get it. No one cool is playing Dungeons and Dragons now in 1981. I get it. I thought so. Okay. okay. That, or at least right. that was my read of it. Was no, that, of that course is him it is. Taunting Sean Penn's character of course on the staircase it is. there. That makes so much more sense now. Thank you. Because I just took it at face value because he had just been so derpy in Endless Love. I was like, oh, now he's getting the <laughs> dork roles. That's really good, actually. Yeah. I can see how the, watching those films back to back gives you an insight onto his character in Taps that oh my perhaps. God isn't going to be sustainable through the arc of the film as a whole. That's hilarious that I missed that. It seems so obvious now. Well, and we just live in a different world vis-a-vis Dungeons and Dragons now. In 2023, all the cool kids at military school, I'm sure, are playing D&D. Sure, yeah. Back in 81. So the original Dungeons and Dragons comes out in 74. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons comes out in 77. So it is 
it's not quite at its nadir in yeah. 81, but we're about to get into the satanic panic and then it's going to disappear for the better part of 15 yeah, years. Yeah, sure. That's basically the arc of D&D. But right now in 81, it is very, very nerdy. <laughs> There is so much to talk about with TAPS. We've got Tom Cruise, of course. We've got Timothy Hutton. We've got Evan Handler. We've got Giancarlo Esposito. We've got Sean Pan's first major motion picture role. He'd done a little mm -hmm. bit of television work before this, but this is his first movie. We've got the incomparable George C. Scott. So good. Giving what is, for me, a, a worthy candidate for the performance of his career. I think he is so exceptionally good, and the material is so exceptionally good. Yes. But all of that lies on the other side of a gulf for us, my dear, because this is the trailer game. And this <gasps> oh, <no>. is episode <laughs> two, which means that it's your turn. Okay. You have to improvise a trailer in trailer voice for taps. Are you ready? This is so hard because... I want the trailer game to be fun and funny, but this movie is like <laughs> not. <laughs> Maybe we can start mixing up genres. Maybe you can imagine <laughs> that it's uh, an animated musical comedy. Sure. Starring rodents of some sort. <laughs> okay. The boys of Bunker Hill Military Academy are the future leaders of men. Led by George C. Scott as General Harlan Bache, young Brian Moreland will become a major, a future general, perhaps, as he leads these young men, <laughs> as he leads these young men into an uprising that may cost them their lives and certainly a piece of their souls. Coming in 1981. <laughs> Taps. Bravo. That didn't tell you very much. Bravo. You know, but I, it, it told me everything I needed. Does it, it's everything you need to know, Absolutely. right? Okay, thanks. Yeah. That was fun. That's hard. <laughs> so let's get into the behind the scenes of Taps. Like Endless Love, Taps is adapted from a novel written in the 1970s. Unlike Endless Love, this adaptation kind of respects the subject matter, though... The novel, mm. from my understanding, it's actually rather difficult to get hold of now, but the novel, from my understanding, Father Sky. Which is, is a great title. Father right? Sky is really cool. It's yeah. even more scathing about the dangers of this kind of blind obedience yes. and this blind sense of honor. It's, it's much harder edged, perhaps, mm. than the movie turns out to be. There are a few adaptational choices, which I find really interesting, which I guess we'll get into as we start moving yeah. through the structure of the plot as a whole. The novel was written by Devery Freeman, a longtime screenwriter who, in addition to working on a number of movies, is perhaps most noted in his writing career for working on television. He wrote on, I was thrilled to discover, like 60 episodes of a Nick and Nora Charles TV show called The Thin Man. That's so cool. I had no idea that existed. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. So many Nick and Nora stories in a 30-minute TV format from the late 1950s, early 1960s. Wow. I don't know if they're still available. I'll have to go and take a look for those after Or any good. The I wonder podcast. if they're good. Yeah. Well, it's Nick and Nora, so they're going to be it's true. entertaining, yeah. at least. <laughs> uh, he also worked on Get Smart, which I know is a very influential and pivotal TV show that I myself Definitely. have never seen. That's not, really? one, not one that made it across to Britain yeah, when that's I was growing fine. up, at least. Uh, Freeman is, even more importantly, than his writing career, though, famous for his work with the WGA. He was a union man mm. who worked hard on defining the rules of accreditation for writers in Hollywood. The rules that govern who gets a credit on a screenplay for the story or for the actual writing. 
those rules are arcane, they are labyrinthine, they are incredibly precise, and they are there to protect writers. And it's because of the work of people like Devery Freeman that we have those rules in place. That's awesome. I respect the hell out of that. Uh, particularly here in the wake of the WGA yeah, strike, uh, SAG-AFTRA still mm-hmm. out, of course, and we stand in solidarity with those uh, with those individuals. But as of this recording, the WGA strike is in the process of being ratified, so hopefully. So exciting. Hopefully, people can just get back to work. That's mm-hmm. not, I think, too much to ask. This film was directed by Harold Becker, not a filmmaker that I was terribly familiar with before I sat down to watch Tabs. He has directed a film that I have seen and really enjoyed, which is uh, Malice, the 1993 movie starring, ooh, Cruise adjacent, the 1993 movie starring Nicole Kidman, Alec Baldwin, uh, Bill Pullman, Bill Pullman, Bill Paxton. Oh, I hate when I fall into a cliche (laughs) trap like this. It is Bill Pullman in Malice. From a script by Aaron Sorkin. So that, that's a really interesting film. A tight little little neo-noir. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember being rather fond of that. His cultural footprint, though, is perhaps more grounded in commercial television than it is on the big screen. Because Harold Becker directed that one Grey Poupon ad about <laughs> the two Rolls Royces pulling yes. up next to each other. That one that that's has... a great commercial. Which I think people of our generation probably know more from Wayne's World than from the original commercial. We just all said it as a kid. I don't know. We just said it all the time. <laughs> we, we just thought it was the funniest thing ever. I didn't watch much Wayne's World, but I definitely know the Grey Poupon commercial. <laughs> this film also, as we hinted earlier, has... An absolutely stellar cast. Yeah. Timothy Hutton at the heart of this particular ensemble, coming off of his Academy Award winning performance in Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford. He was maybe three months out from from winning that Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor before coming into TAPS and gives what I think is an absolutely brilliant performance. I think he's lovely. Yeah. It's a really difficult role. It's a very nuanced role. Yeah. And it's hard because he carries the film and he does lead the entire academy uh into this god what is it it's it's a rebellion mutiny yeah, insurrection mutiny? yeah insurrection a loaded is word a good here in word. yes yeah. yes uh and it, it's really important that we understand his point of view and his motivation and he does that for us i think i think we we see yes how much he is enamored of George C. Scott's character of the general and how much he is trying to do like the noble, honorable thing while being, it's so clear, the film makes it very clear, or I thought so anyway, how incredibly misguided he is. Which is a quality that I do associate with Timothy Hutton as a performer. I, I oftentimes think that he can give very impassioned and, and present performances, mm. which are nonetheless undercut by the sense that this guy probably isn't doing the right thing. Yes. There's just a, a cadence to his performance, a shadow on his performance mm. that always leads me to to question his motives, if not his actions outright. And that plays beautifully here, particularly with this very still and stately cinematography yes. that we're given. Yeah. The other headline, of course, for this film is that it is, as I mentioned, Sean Penn's first big screen role. What is your relationship with Sean Penn? Uh, he's my boyfriend. <laughs> I'm kidding. I uh, I don't have big feelings about Sean Penn as an actor, I suppose. Uh, I remember everybody talking about him for Mystic River. And mm-hmm. I watched Mystic River, which was grim. Uh, and he was, of course, very good in it. But I just, maybe it's the roles that he's in. I find him unenjoyable. I do understand that, yeah. Right? Just very serious and very like 
haunted, maybe. So, and there was some of that in this role, I suppose. But for most of it, I felt that it was uh, kind of a thin performance, honestly. I've never really enjoyed Sean Penn. I've never mm. really, there's a stridency and also a self-consciousness to his performance that I find a little off-putting. He's got some of that, like... He has big New York theater energy. I, I, that is exactly what yeah. I was about to say. He's reminding me of, like, an Edward Norton. He's giving me, like, uh, to a, a John Cusack to a certain degree, too. Mm. There, there's an almost deliberate desire to be unlikable, to be to, to create a friction with the audience that exists mm. overlaid upon the character. This is yeah. not an actor who will disappear into a role, I think. He certainly doesn't disappear into this role. I find him no. pretty thin and, and by far the weakest member of the ensemble, I would say. Yeah, I think so. My, my big surprise treat was Evan Handler, who I thought was just gorgeous in this. He was just so good. fantastic in this and such great moral depth yeah. in, in such a young actor. This is only his second credit. Giancarlo Esposito, who is also fantastic in this film yeah. until his untimely demise, mm -hmm. uh, is also great. He had, I think, five or six credits already. He had been working since 1979 before he wow. gets to TAPS. But also just great. And, of course, uh, Tom Cruise in his second credit after a small little-known movie called uh, Endless Love. Never heard of Doesn't it. Doesn't sound familiar. We should probably <laughs> check it out, though. We should be completists <laughs> about the filmography, at least. Cruise was originally cast as a background actor in this film, uh, but at the insistence of the director, Harold Becker, and the producer, Stanley Jaffe, he was urged to take the fifth build position. He demurred at first, really had to be talked into it, which is one of two things about Tom Cruise in this film, which are perhaps surprising to people who know him better from his later work. The first is that he should be so reticent about taking a larger role. He will headline right. almost all of the movies that he produces over his career. He's rarely buried in the ensemble. Yeah. The other thing is that all of the primary actors were enlisted in a 45-day boot camp to learn how to act like young soldiers, to learn all of the parade detail, to learn how to handle their weapon, to learn how to dress properly. There was a lot of that, too. You could definitely tell. That paid off. It really, the depth of the detail yes. in so many shots is just striking, yes. I thought. Tom Cruise, however, did not want to take part in that and stayed in a hotel while all the other <laughs> actors completed this 45-day training regime. He must have done the training part, at least, because he also had to do, like, the crazy he seems rifle very comfortable dances. with and, it all, yes. yes. Rifle dances? Rifle dances. <laughs> you know how you learn, first of all, rifle dances? It's, you know... There's something rah, rah, rah cheerleadery about the whole right. thing. We should probably have put this earlier in the podcast, but let's put it now. Why not? We are not experts on matters military. No, we both come from like military background-ish yes. families. Yes, but My stepfather was in the Royal Air Force and uh, there was a tradition of service sure. on his side of the family, certainly. And yours? Uh, my family has a tradition of service. That's why I'm in Oklahoma. We have Tinker Air Force Base. So both of my grandfathers were military. Mm -hmm. And that's how my parents met because their dads were stationed in the same spot. Uh, my brother very shortly joined the army and hated it and got the fuck out as soon as he could. So, yeah. <laughs> so we are connected to the military and we certainly have a respect for our servicemen and women in this country mm -hmm. and in my native land as well. But we are not experts. We are not going to all. get some of these details wrong. Did we have to double check and really give it a moment's thought that this was an army academy? <laughs> Yes, we did. Triple check it even. Just, just to make like really like, is there sure. A difference? Well, is it just military school? It is complicated. Until you like pick a right? team that you're going into. Do you have to yeah, declare like, a major? Yes. Exactly. I don't know. Do you get sorted into Hufflepuff or the Navy? I don't know. 
Exactly. But no, this is a U.S. Army Military Academy. Yeah. It is a fictional, well, a quasi-fictional. Quasi there was yeah. a real-life Bunker Hill Military Academy in Illinois, but sure. it closed in like 1914. And they shoot it at what, Valley Forge They shoot it Academy? at Valley Forge yeah. Military Academy as well. It, it is such an incredible location. Not, not even yes. the set, but the locale is just spectacular. Yes. The cinematography in general, I think, very strong through this film. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I, I, I think it didn't stand out to me, but it wasn't supposed to. Um, it was, for me, more the, I'm going to call it choreography, that stood mm. out to me. Let's talk a little about the brilliant George C. Scott. Oh, my God. The first please. act of this film is basically George C. Scott giving a series of monologues of, of yeah. differing levels of formality. I find his delivery pitch perfect. I find it absolutely engaging and absorbing. I think he's brilliant in this film. I couldn't agree more. In fact, after I watched the movie, I read Roger Ebert's review. Ah. And he said that it was worth the price of admission alone to hear George C. Scott pronounce condominiums. <laughs> it absolutely it is. is. <laughs> and it's so vital. The film lives or dies. The film walks or yes. falls based on the strength of that performance. Yes. We His have to Timothy believe Hutton's, yeah. that these young men are so inspired by this figure right. who will then be somewhat deconstructed by the National Guard colonel as we move toward the end of the mm -hmm. film. Uh, there are things about this film that make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. There are yeah. things about this film that I find so ambitious and enchanting. And ultimately, it doesn't all hang together. No, but I wonder, this is one of the things that, that Ebert mentioned in his review too, so I'm just cribbing it straight from him because I didn't really recognize it at the time. He posits that it's really a fantasy story that just happens to be set in the military in, in this military camp, but it's really not about the military itself or the school specifically, which is why I didn't even notice. But there's not a single other teacher or adult mm -hmm. that we ever see on the campus. We only well, see George C. Scott do see because he's such a figurehead. Do we? When? Uh, when they go to the armory. We see him twice. The first time when he has taken oh. stock in the armory, and then the second time when he returns with yeah, the sheriff. Yeah, but he's like a but secretary. Exactly right. Yeah. right? That's administrative. Yeah. That's not yes. faculty. Yes, administration. In the Absolutely. Same way. I see what Ebert is saying there. I think it is unwise to try to extricate this film from its context. It's difficult to talk about militarism in right. films from the perspective of the 21st century, looking back on the 20th century. In 1981, this country is coming out of a very unpopular military action. Yes. The, the reputation of the military, the civilian response to the military is very different. And the way that the military has been politically charged is very different than yeah. it is now, than it was 20 years ago, really of course. Really post 9-11. But, but still yeah. here in, in 2023. I do think that this is a film that is about the military. I do think that this is a film yeah. about how we turn young men into leaders, young people, but of course it's absolutely it's just young men, men in, in, in the film. Absolutely. How mm -hmm. we turn individuals into exceptional leaders in the military space and also not in the military space, but much more importantly, how we anchor the military in the civilian world. That, I think, is what we get mm. from the National Guard colonel at the end of the film. And to a certain extent, Moreland's father. Yeah. Uh, who both managed to articulate just a much more sane approach that... that you know, it reminds me of, of the quote, uh, oftentimes when, when criticism is hurled at uh, J.R.R. Tolkien for The Lord of the Rings and the way that he draws these very clean lines between what is good and what is evil, we, mm -hmm. we oftentimes overlay upon that an interpretation of the First or Second World War. These are thin interpretations. This is bad criticism, I think, of Tolkien. 
particularly because there is a letter where he writes to his son, Christopher, when he is stationed in South Africa during the Second World War, when he says, of military leadership, there are orcs on both sides. Hmm. This idea that good service is possible, that, that honor is important, but when we are blinded to the civilian context in which the military exists, which is what has happened at Bunker Hill, you're right. We don't have any other teachers. We don't have any other faculty. Right. We don't have any other staff, really. Yeah. And the word other, I think, is important, too. Like everybody else, when we get, they call them the townies. Anyone who yeah. is not in the military school is very much othered. And these young men are othered by them as well. Like it's, it's well, it's cultish. Do you think that this film has anything intentional to say about masculinity in general? Because as we discussed when we were it's watching incredibly it, incredibly masculine. this film, film fails the Bechdel test. Oh, <laughs> yes, hard. Yeah. Uh, and there's only one woman in the credits, really, mm -hmm. uh, that that is uh, on the crew side of things, who is the casting director. Yeah, yeah. Face, everybody else is a man who, who has their hands on this thing at all. And the so, only women in the film are mothers of the boys. Mothers girlfriends. We have a few girls coming to the dance. We have a few girls wrapped up with the townies later. Mm -hmm. We have uh, George C. Scott's housekeeper, I guess, is who that figure is. But that's really it. Apart yeah. from that, it's wall-to-wall -wall men of action. Yes, absolutely. Uh, no, I think it's it's definitely unpicking masculinity, um, leadership in general, what is honorable, and what happens when we tell men from a young age that they get to make and enforce the rules. Mm. Well, that's particularly interesting. Yeah, and well, and upsetting. Yeah. It's nicely done because, to draw back the curtain a little bit, Alistair and I watched these movies at different times. So I was watching by myself when you came in and I think it was what, like maybe a third of the way through at this mm -hmm. point. And so we had not gotten to the insurrection yet, but we could tell that there was something, there was blood in the water, right? Something was going to go on. Um, and I mentioned that I felt that the camera was impartial, mm. w w was just kind of a fly on the wall. And you were fearful that the camera was not only not impartial, but that this was not going to end well, I suppose. Again, and of course yes. it doesn't end well. It does, though. Cinematically, More, narratively, morally, and it, narratively, morally, yes, it, it ends, ends very well. well. Yes. It ends as it should, as it must. As it must. It yeah. ends. It is, it is, of course, a tragic ending mm -hmm. in the Shakespearean sense. And it is a tragic and ending. it must But be. that's it. It's unavoidable. We cannot permit this character who has fallen so far... Uh, Timothy Hutton's character, Brian mm -hmm. Moreland, we cannot permit this character to be reintegrated into society. He has been poisoned. He has been yeah. poisoned by this excess of a good thing. This is in part what his father says to him during their scene together, the wrong execution of the right idea. Yeah, Honor is important. Loyalty is important. Obedience within a military framework is important, mm -hmm. but you can't take these things too far. Right. Lacking the mediating force, lacking the civil presence of families and connections this is mm. tied back to what Beish is saying earlier in the story about many men my age have retired and they're they're hitting golf balls around and right yet they're leading lives yes. they're doing the thing that their career was supposed to enable and protect they have not become poisoned right by this this militaristic hyper masculinity now you have to quote Faramir for me <laughs> I do not love the sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they protect. Mm. Unexpected amount of Tolkien <laughs> in this week's episode. How did this happen? <laughs> I wrote too many notes, and now we're talking about Tolkien. I guess it is my podcast after all. 
Yeah, uh, I wrote down a couple of George C. Scott's lines because they were so great and they were stirring. It was really important to get his character right because in order to understand like what unfolds, you really do have to see the romance in it at least a little bit, yeah. which I've always been kind of predisposed to, probably because I did grow up so close to an airbase and like my first love wanted to be a naval fighter pilot. So mm -hmm. like I had all, I just assumed for a long time that I was going to be an officer's wife. Like this was just going to be part of what my life would be. Uh, even my dad wanted to join the military. I should have said this earlier. The only reason that he couldn't was because he had an accident that blinded him in his right eye. Right, so right. he wasn't able. Um, George C. Scott has a line Man was meant to be a warrior. We're all sons of our Viking fathers, which is such a weird white guy in charge thing to say. Yeah. But also you feel like the ancientry of it, you know, he says these beautiful romantic things, but there's also this edge of gross right. white privilege and power behind them, too. Well, and even we are all the sons of our Viking fathers. Yeah. Is oddly appropriative. It, yeah. it has like a you're right, a grandeur and a glamour. That old romance. Yeah. But yeah, is is not a cool thing to say in a multicultural context, no. in a modern context. No. Uh, he has the line, too, when they find out that the school is going to, going to be closed. There's a feeling on the outside that schools like this are anachronistic, that leaders like you and me are dinosaurs. And I wrote that down because I'm like, yeah, I feel like that. I feel like the school is anachronistic and weird. And the kind of leadership that you're portraying right now is backwards and that was you know even for 81 i was thinking that because the film opens so beautifully with that long shot going down the row gorgeous opening gorgeous opening yeah. sequence but they're playing some hymn which i don't know and i know a lot of hymns from my church days so i recognized immediately this kind of like church setting sure. <laughs> which is its own kind of rhetorical yes it's so it's so interesting that we start there because mm. I suspected that we were going to connect these two things, but there is not a lot of, of God talk no. in the rest of the you, film. I think the connection is there to be made for people who are willing to make it mm. uh, or predisposed to make it. I certainly am, and it was the first connection that I made, and I think it was supposed to be, and that's why they started there in the church. But, uh, you know, all the boys' backs lined up perfectly, nobody moving or stirring or scratching their nose or anything. Uh, as And I was thinking about, like, the... Onward Christian Soldiers song mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like how much militarism is in the church sure. and how closely connected those things are and how when you get into this small, tightly knit group of people who have a very specific ideology, how difficult it is to think any other way mm. and how simple it seems to know that you are in the right and how dogmatic you are about what is right, which is, of course, what the movie ends up breaking down so bombastically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That opening shot, I do think, is just breathtaking. It's almost two minutes long as we mm. just slowly creep forward and, and talking about that sense of oppression, talking about that sense of, of imminent threat. There yes. is, of course, grandeur. There is, of course, dignity. There is, of course, honor here. Right. But there's also that sense that, oh, this is this is going bad already. Absolutely. Well, and then the scene ends with George C. Scott reading from the Book of Remembrance, which mm. is like every kid who left here and died right. in, in the war. There's also, as we finish moving forward, at, at the end of this, this two-minute shot, as, as we're moving through this church space, we cut to a hard inversion of our POV. We suddenly look back toward the door. 
And for some reason, it feels like a horror movie shot. It feels in its suddenness and its specificity and also in the geometry of the composition, very much like The Shining, which of course would have been a major influence mm. on cinematographers at this time. Oh, of course, yeah. But all through this, there is this, this feeling of, of yes, ancientry and yes, dignity, but also something that is coming. Yes. And then we cut very hard to the dorm space and all of its life and energy and spontaneity, even though these young men are very disciplined, even though these young men all want to be here, that they are all striving for for a kind of, you know, ordered greatness. Mm -hmm. It feels very organic. This is, of course, where we're introduced on the staircase to Alex Dwyer, to the Sean Penn character, uh -huh. and to David Sean, the Tom Cruise character, with that line about Dungeons and Dragons, which is yeah. where I wrote down in my note, this film is relevant to my interests. <laughs> And then we move into Brian Morland. We get to meet uh, Timothy Hutton. We yeah. get just a moment of him with Penn before he goes off to meet with Harlan Beish, the general, to go off and, and be awarded the rank of cadet major. He mm -hmm. is the incoming senior... Head boy. He's, he's head boy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Beish has dinner with the new guy and the old guy, whose name is Cooper, who is obviously a wiser young man, who obviously hasn't fallen so completely under the sway of Beish. He has that lovely moment later in the film as he's leaving, before everything goes horribly wrong, where he pulls up in his car and he shakes Moreland's hands, and then he gets out of Dodge. And there's this sense that he's going to go on to be a good soldier. Right. He is not going to be caught up in this. This is indicated early when Beish puts out that, uh, quote, the one permanent part of a man's life, and Moreland says, honor. Before Cooper can get to it, before Beish can finish the quote, he's demonstrating this yeah. impossible eagerness. Ah, it's it's great stuff. And and everything. Yes, you're right. There's so mm -hmm. much here that is presented to us as polished gravitas. We've got yeah. George C. Scott opining. But the script is so sharp and so deliberate in the way that it makes us uncomfortable as viewers. Yes. In the way that it begins to set up this polarity within the narrative space. It would be easy, I think, to watch this film casually, to watch it without due attention and to think that it is a hoorah military tragedy. That totally. This is about how great soldiers are and how the civilian world doesn't deserve them. Yes, horrifyingly, on the IMDb page, there's that list on the right that's like user lists. Oh, sure. Where users create oh, lists. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. So some of them are just like, Sean Penn, whatever. This list <laughs> I says... I would create an IMDb list called Sean Penn, whatever. <laughs> One says, yeah, uh, Sean Penn movies I've seen. I'm like, okay, sure. But one list says uncucked masculinity. And I'm not going to click on that. Yeah. I don't want that to exist. No, we are. I mean, we should acknowledge, I'm sure it's implicit. If you've listened to us for more than five minutes, we're all on the same page here. But we are, of course, skirting a giant toxic masculine guns and God dumping ground that oh, yeah. is off at the side of our culture right now and making gross inroads into the rest of our culture sometimes but yeah there there is a profoundly the minute that someone says that they're remaking taps i check out i am done i am not you know going oh to you think that they would turn it sour there is no way that you could make this film in 2023 i think you're right I'm not certainly say. not from a major studio certainly not yeah. as a criticism of a military academy i mean yeah no, you're right. You're right. Good luck getting funding. This is one mm. of the ways in which I, I disagree respectfully so, with Ebert, that I do not think that the militarism of this film is, can be removed from from its text. It's yeah. not just about great men. It's not just the, the great man theory of history, right? It, it's more than that. It, it is actually about the thing that it presents itself as, which is yeah. the relationship between the military and the civilian world. 
but we're firmly entrenched with the civilian world. We are on the side of the civilians here. I think the film is nuanced in its take on the, on, on the role of civilians too, though, because they're presented at first you know, as the townies who come and are like mocking everybody and starting the fight. And they look like assholes at first. They do. And Absolutely. so you're worried. You're like, is this movie trying to no. put the U.S. military on the sure. back foot and say that they're the underdogs? Which, of course, it doesn't end up ultimately doing. But it but does it, crucially feel like that in the does, first act. It which does is important, so much in again, that first act. Which, yeah, yeah. To get us not on side with Hutton, yeah. with, with Brian Moreland, but to help us to understand how he might make the decisions that he ends up making and how so many young men will go with him. But you're right. I, th I think perhaps I'm overstating my position here. Mm. This is not an anti-military film. This is not, you know, decrying right. real good, effective soldiery. In fact, arguably the two best people in the entire thing. Well, the three, if you include Evan Handler, of course. Evan Handler the is great. The three best people are yeah. good soldiers. Yes, yes. That's one of the things that was so, I, I thought, important also that the film did is that Evan Handler is the first to step forward to leave, but he does it in full military style. He puts his yes. weapon down. He comes forward. He salutes. He says, what, permission to exit yeah. duty captain or whatever it is, major, I guess. And the permission is granted. He doesn't just fuck off. No, you know? he leads his man out. He they leads are his, his man, man out. and yes. he, he takes command of them and he leads them out properly. It's, it's beautiful. It's a great moment. It's a great yeah. moment. It's lovely to watch. And the fact that he is separating the wheat from the chaff, as it were. He's taking the good of what he has learned out the door and leaving the bad of what he has learned. Yeah. And I really wish that they had given more nuance to Tom Cruise's character because he just ends up an idiot with a machine gun, Well, I think. He is an idiot and he does have a machine gun, but to me he is more reflective of Brian Moreland that... that Timothy Hutton is giving us this character who is all honor and no action. He is is stayed and fixed as General Beish is, right? He's not moving. Yeah. He is a static figure. And even the fight to preserve the school is a, mm. is, is a fight to preserve. It right. is a, it is a like conservative entrenched. argument. Mm -hmm. Whereas David Sean, Tom Cruise's character, is all action with no honor. They are, it seems to me, kind of bracketing what it is to be a good soldier. We have one extreme where you are all dignity and all principle and no humanity and the other where you are all savagery and no humanity. And in the middle, you have the, the vast bulk of soldiers yeah. as they are presented to us in the course of this film. You have Evan Handler, you have Sean Penn, you have Giancarlo mm -hmm. Esposito. Yeah. And, and there's even the conversation where, where Evan Handler, uh, what's his character? We should talk about him. Lieutenant West is yes, his name. Edward West. So Lieutenant West comes in to speak with Major Moreland, mm -hmm. and he has just been uh, doing what, like a proximity check. I don't know what you call these things because they're not in the military, but he's been going around making sure everybody's doing their job. And he checks on one of the guys who's in David Sean's Red Beret group. Yes. Uh, a sentry? Is that yes. what? The, yes, a sentry. And he says, What are your orders, sir? And the guy says, To shoot anything that comes over this wall. Over, under, or around this wall. Over, under, or around yeah. this wall. Which is expressly not the command that had been given by Moreland not in the all. preceding scene. No, which no. Was, Do not fire unless I give the order. Yes. Yes. So there we already see that David Sean is taking matters into his own hands and trying to force a confrontation with the National Guard because yes. what he wants is death and glory. What he wants, yes, yes, uh, uh, yes. H however, what, what I was getting to is that when Lieutenant West comes in and relays that story to Major Moreland, you anticipate that Major Moreland will say, oh, I'll go talk to those guys. They gotta get, I gotta calm them down. But he, instead, he says, 
that's a sentry's job. That's what I want a sentry to do. I remember having a conversation with a guy that I worked with who had joined the police force when I lived in Wisconsin, uh, relaying a horrible detail from the evening before. And I was so shocked by it that I talked to my dad about it because it bothered me a lot. And I remember my dad saying, those are the guys you want on the front line, though. And I was like, shit, I know what you mean. I don't know that I agree, but you, to an extent, need someone who can just turn off the light on empathy for a minute. I suppose I wanted more of that kind of intelligent argument from the movie than we got. We got a little bit of it, but I would have liked to have more sympathy and more understanding of David Sean before he went apeshit in that tower. See, I think that his is the character that doesn't get sympathy and understanding because he is not a character. He is what is animalistic in the human nature, right? This film asserts that men exist on a spectrum between the bestial and and the angelic, right? That, that, that what redeems us is honor. What redeems us is loyalty. What redeems us is mm. order. Mm-hmm. And that David Sean is what happens when we don't have those things, when he doesn't have what we might think of most broadly as discipline. So I don't think that that he gets humanity and complexity within the frame of the film because Purposely. really within the frame of the film, he is not human. He is not like entirely human. He is the bestial part of us. That is interesting because that's another George C. Scott line when he's talking to Moreland, when Moreland comes in and is worried that he should not have been promoted major because his first thought when he heard the school was shutting down was right. not for his fellow man, it was for himself. Yeah. And George C. Scott tells him... Uh, Harlan Beish. Harlan Beish. Yes. General Harlan Beish tells him uh, that it is, in fact, his humanity which will make him a great leader and to never apologize for being human, even if that means that you're thinking about yourself for a moment and your own feelings for a, for a moment and not just eye on the prize, you know? Though we have to question, I suppose, whether or not he means that and whether or not that actually has any applicability to the life of yeah. the kind of soldier that Beish is and the kind of soldier that he is turning Moreland into. This is interesting because he really is presented to us like a perfect soldier as a perfect general. Like that's how we see the the boys seeing him, I think. And yes. and and the, and the things I described earlier like he orates so beautifully and he sees the romance in service so beautifully uh that I guess we just assume that he is himself a great soldier or what the film believes a great soldier is. But then when we meet Moreland's actual dad, who is a soldier yeah. as well, he says, you know, you respect this guy so much, but he's been passed up for duty yep. so many times. He's got, what do you say? like Articulating this real, those who can't teach yeah, kind of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is, of course, garbage in the real world. In the end, I don't think that Beish is supposed to have been a great general. I think, in fact, we get the best version of a serviceman and a leader in the leader of the National Guard who comes in. Colonel Kirby. Colonel yes. Kirby, yeah. Absolutely. I think he is the one. He is our icon of, of good soldiery yes. at the end of this film. Yeah. yeah, and he tells Moreland, I know what you are. You're a death lover. Someone has made you fall in love with death and told you it was honorable. And that's not what being a soldier is. Right. We're right. a long way down the track here we in are. terms of our breakdown of this film. I do think it's interesting, though, that... that it is possible to kind of half squint and, and tilt your head slightly and see Beish as the figure that Moreland sees him as. Mm -hmm. But the active audience who is engaging with the text will get these little, yes. you know, tripping hazards. We'll yes. get these little stumbles that indicate that he is definitely not 
all that, that Moreland apprehends him to be. So after the dinner with Beish and Cooper, Moreland returns to his dorm. We get these repeated beats as he's talking with first Champagne and then the other cadets where he's talking about brandy and he's talking about honor and he's so awestruck. So he's so starstruck. He's just gleaming at the prospects yeah. of the year ahead. And that is just taken a step further when David Sean organizes for him a corridor dance routine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it reminded me of uh, watching the high school band do their routines. Um, color it's guard, not not color guard. It's You're basically color right. guard. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool. It's very impressive, but it's full on a dance routine. It was. I remember writing down in my in my little book of notes. Gender is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> then we move forward into the commencement ceremony of the following day, and. Wow, is there pomp? You best believe it. Is there so circumstance? Pomp. So much circumstance. By the bucket full. <laughs> it's stunning. And we really get to see, through Timothy Hutton's eyes, the best version of this life. That this really yeah. is the pinnacle of, of what being a military man can be. And then we get the first of what we might consider to be two different inciting incidents, both of which yes. serve a similar overlapping structural purpose in the film. This is when Beish delivers this gorgeous speech about Bunker Hill Military Academy being closed down so that the land can be sold for the development of condominiums. <laughs> it is, again, as we've been discussing, this is a fantastic speech and it's really easy to miss what is important here, mm. but it is still complex and it is still challenging. And he is asserting, this, is, this happens when you put a figure of authority on screen. What that figure of authority within the frame of the narrative says can be taken as what the film is saying. Right. But I do think that Harold Becker incredibly skillfully creates distance between Beish and Moreland and us. Yes, I do. We then move pretty quickly, I think, into the second inciting incident at the dance, the commencement dance. Right. As the, the cadets and their dates are, are gathering, the townies are outside throwing beer cans and a surprising number of slurs. Oh, given, yeah even that this was 1981, just mm -hmm. like a really uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, there is, of course, homophobia in the film. Probably surprising no one. Yeah. Yes. A fight breaks out. And when General Beish intervenes to break it up, one of the townies, well, it's ambiguous. It is. Yeah. It is clear. I watched the sequence very clear. four or five times. Very clear. Very clear that it is the boy's hand on the pistol. Absolutely. The pistol is fired. The other young man drops dead immediately because... Yes. You know, in this kind of circumstance, narratively, this is never going to be a, a wounded individual. Right. He just drops dead right on the spot. But then when we cut back, Beish's hand is on the gun. Yeah. It's so odd. Immediately, one of the townies says, you killed him. And, and there Beish is no to investigation. Is he, he does. Yeah. And everybody else does, too. And it's never brought up again. But we definitely could. I mean, it isn't perhaps easy to ask George C. Scott for another take where a 20-year-old man is on his back and he's kind of spinning around awkwardly. Maybe you just decide that what you've got is good enough. But I really needed it to be his hand and yeah. not the young man's hand on the gun. Or I needed to know that he was taking the fall for this kid because he that's was the other possible the interpretation. General. I was waiting for that. And that's what that. you do. Yeah. Yes. But that would have been contrary to his specific character, I think. Yeah. I don't think that Beish takes the fall for a civilian killing Not a civilian. civilian. He would have for one of the boys. Yeah. But Maybe he is, is honoring that line, even if that line ought not to be honored. Mm. So what do you think of this double inciting incident structure. First, we have the kids all riled up. We get Moreland feeling passionate because Bunker Hill is going to be taken away, because it is going to be swallowed up by the most civilian enterprise, real estate development, uh, right? Yeah. Mm. This conflict between 
ancientry and pageantry and honor and dignity and the crassest kind of commercialism. Right. Particularly in the early 1980s. So we've got that conflict already established. And then we have the personal conflict of Beish being taken away into custody. And then, as the boys hear on their radio set, suffering a heart attack. Yeah. But there's no conflict there because Beish either did not shoot that young man or did shoot that young Yeah. It's not presented to us as ambiguous. And then it is also completely dropped. It's not even really used as as yeah. a starting spark for the rest of the conflict. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's a weird non sequitur, because especially since from the beginning with his glasses of brandy and my doctor says I can only have one cigar and this is my third today. Like we've been... And we see him taking heart medicine twice. Like before this man is going to have a heart attack. We all know he's going to have a heart attack. He doesn't need to also shoot a kid. So I, I don't... I guess because... It's in the book. But that's is that the, why it's there? Well, that is it, in fact. Yeah, yeah that is the sole inciting that's incident the, in the book. Oh. But here we we switch our focus. It's a big change. Well, <laughs> to to just lose the gun, to, to lose the shooting completely. Yeah. And instead just have they're shutting down the school to make condiment names does seem like it's really they're changing. Shutting the book down the school a in a year. Bash suffers year. a heart attack. The board of trustees decides that no, they're shutting the school down now. That seems to me to be just as efficacious yes. because that, that is, if you take the shooting at, that is what happens in the yeah, film. Yeah. That seems to me to be as structurally strong as also he accidentally shoots a kid and it triggers some trouble with the townies. Because yeah. we're not at any point defending ourselves from, you know, ragtag bands of townsfolk coming up with pitchforks right. and flaming torches. That doesn't play any part in this proceeding. So the way that we switch focus, it, it makes sense to me in that we are presenting these boys in a more sympathetic light if this is really about, you know, the dignity of this august institution and preserving mm-hmm. it for the next generation and all of the things that they talk about, about, right. you know, tradition and, and, and the like. That makes them more sympathetic than, no, our commanding officer killed a kid in the street and has been arrested for it as he should be. Yeah. But we're also not taking advantage of our commanding officer has been taken into custody for a crime that he did not commit, right. which would also work as an inciting incident. Which would incident. make more sense for closing ranks like yeah. they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit messy. Well, good news. We're not going to spend any more time thinking about it's it. And it's just going to be about the closure of the school from here on out. Right. Yeah. And the general dies. Spoilers. Yeah. So from there, we branch into two simultaneous plot threads, which will define the shape of the rest of this story. We have Moreland going into the armory where he finds the dean of students taking inventory of cases of guns and An grenades. insane amount yes. of weaponry yeah. at this school. Yeah. Really upsetting really upsetting yeah. yeah and we'll see so much of it later and it just gets more and more upsetting with that great beat too when they realize that Moreland's in there and they say how did you get in and he said through the door yeah the and door was open oh my god this isn't even oh my god <laughs> it's it is one of the clearest moments where the film is very strong on, yeah. on its perspective as distinct from the perspective of the individual characters contained within mm-hmm. it uh, we also then have the other guys taking two trucks into town to dupe a local store owner out of some food, I guess, because they know that this siege is coming. Yes. I do think that Sean Penn is terrific in the scene where he is bluffing the grocer, pulling all of that military bombast, all yeah. of that like technicality and all of that formalism into his language. Totally. That's a really nice moment from mm-hmm. him. Trouble, though, as the convoy begins to return to school, one of the trucks stalls out. They are beset by townies. Mm-hmm. And we have Tom Cruise taking action. We have uh, yeah. David Sean firing his weapon into the air. Yeah. What did you feel about that sequence as we're moving through it? Mm, just that you're beginning to see things come off the rails a little bit. It was interesting because 
it didn't seem like a terrible choice at the time for Sean because it was just the quickest way to get everybody to clear the area. No one was hurt. No one was harmed. We didn't even get like much in the way of punches thrown yet, right? No, no. Yeah. So it did just break everything up. But then to also see later when Moreland is like, that's not how we do it. And this should have gone better. And Sean Penn saying, I can't believe you guys are even calling this a successful mission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it, w- it was interesting because I-, I didn't know then how far things were going to go. So it was a nice escalation, I think, that got me thinking about how far these kids were going to go. Yeah. Escalation is a really good word for this film, I think. Mm. A, a useful word for this film. Because, you know, last week we talked about Endless Love and how that kept exceeding what was even possible within its own narrative frame. It kept breaking the rules of its own world to get bigger and wilder and weirder. Mm -hmm. And Taps never does that. It is clear from the first frame of Taps where this story could go, and then it goes there. And then it goes there, yeah. Yeah. And that's you know part of building an effective tragedy is setting the framework, warning the audience, there are going to be consequences for this, Yeah. and then delivering those consequences. It's true. You know within the first what, two, three minutes of the film that kids are going to die. I would love to know from our audience if anyone else feels that creeping sense of dread yeah. through that long tracking shot. I don't know. I, I'm unable to pin down exactly what it is that I find so upsetting about it. But yes, from that moment, I, yeah. oh, no, this is only going one way. This <laughs> yes. is this is bad yes. news. I am always upset by churches and church iconography. And anytime I see just indoctrination of children. So sure. I had the dread, but I would be interested to know if people who did not have my particular baggage also felt it. We should note, too, that when leaving the scene of the confrontation with the locals, they smash through a police car, which is a really interesting bit of imagery for me as a viewer of this film who is interested in this conflict between militarism and civilianism. Yeah. Particularly, again, in the 40 years that have passed between this film and and this recording, our relationship with the police has changed. The the role of the police has changed. It has become overtly militaristic. Yes. And to see here... That distinction still being drawn so clearly. Yes, the police have guns. Yes, they're armed. The sheriff's department, right, when they come for the weapons from right. the armory, have guns. They are armed. He tries to arrest Moreland. But that is a civil authority, and it cannot put a hand on the military authority of the Bunker Hill Military Academy. Mm. So we enter the siege phase of this film, which is really going to, to last the rest of the running time. Yeah. Right? We've got very upsetting images of small boys, 10-year-old boys, dragging sandbags to create gun emplacements by that yes. iconic gate. Only, Which is made so much more upsetting knowing they're doing exactly what they were trained to do. Yes. It's so chilling. Yeah. The role of the younger boys in this film, I think, is really interesting. Because it is. It's odd to me that there are only... Two of them, right? Or do we just no, only there, see there the there are two? more. We just focus on two. Oh, yeah. Okay. All we right. We have like right. two title characters in the ensemble who get yeah. names. But there are more younger kids too. There's a whole year of them, presumably. Yes. You come to Bunker Hill when you are 12, when I guess. When you're 12, I'm, I'm yes. exaggerating, rounding them down to 10. But mm. they, they are young, they young are looking young kids. They are young boys. Yeah. Excellent performances by these kids too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that scene early on. In fact, it's our character introduction to Brian Moreland as he's coming down the hallway and he opens the door to their dorm room, to their, their barrack room. And they're watching the tiny little TV in yeah. the suitcase and they kick it closed. He and comes over attention. and inspects everything and then lets them off the hook and leaves. Yeah, It's a really great moment of, of his, what we take in the first instance to be his humanity and, and his, his goodness good and leadership. his generosity. But it's not. It's just him respecting his peers, his soldiers. Yeah, It's not him being in general, in aggregate, a good person. It's about him being very specifically a good leader of this type of young man. Yeah. Overall, though, I think it is interesting that I am 
not bothered particularly by Penn, by Cruz, by Hutton, by Esposito <laughs> carrying guns and, and wearing uniforms in this film. They are old enough, 19 to 22, sure. I think, is the age range here. Tom Cruise is the youngest For at the 19. Yeah. Sean Penn is the oldest at 22. But yeah, seeing those 12-year-olds running around with the guns with like upsetting. Big, uh, with assault rifles. Yeah. yeah, it's really upsetting. Yeah. yeah. There's a great sequence where one of the kids, who I think is one of the Red Berets, uh, is asking, he goes to, to Tom Cruise, David Sean's room, and he, where he's pumping iron and looking pretty flipping buff, I might add. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And has, hey, man, you got a grenade? Yes. And he just kind of gives him a dirty look, and he wanders off to the next guy. He's like, hey, you got a grenade? The guy's like, oh, yeah. Just tosses it to him like it's a beanbag. Yeah. Don't eat it. Very, don't eat it, chump. Yeah. Chunk, whatever your name is. Chunk, I think. Anyway, awful. So from here, we move into the pressure cooker of this film, into yeah. this, this siege. We have a lot of conversations through the first night of, are we doing the right thing? What is it that we want? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? We're laying out an incomplete and very polarized version of the philosophical schema of this yeah, film as a whole. We should go ahead and say for those who didn't watch the film, what the three demands were yes. that Moreland had this, when he took siege. So this is the scene where the sheriff and the Dean of Students return to the armory to find that, uh-oh, all them guns is gone. Uh-huh. Where could they have gone to? And Brian Moreland confronts them, backed up by the, his his cadre of Red Berade. M16 wielding young man and lays out their terms. They have three conditions. They want to have a meeting with General Beige. They want to talk to General Beige. They want a commission to investigate the sale of the school for real estate exploitation of the mm -hmm. land. And they want a meeting with the board of trustees. That's it. That's all that they want. But clearly they want those things so that they can coerce them through military force into protecting the school. I don't even think it's necessarily that they want it for the co coercion it's just, it's again, the thing you said about you, you want the right thing, but you're doing it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, that his dad says, like, these are such simple things. I feel like if they had just gone and asked politely, they would have gone, they would have gotten it immediately. Do you believe at this point that Moreland is so invested in the military infrastructure of Bunker Hill that, well, of course, a commission will learn, will, will determine that you cannot sell the school. Yes. And of course, the board of trustees, if I can just talk to them, will be reasonable and not close the school. And of course, if I can just talk, talk to General Beish, I can uncover the truth and he'll be released and everything will be fine. You think that Moreland believes that at this point? At this point, I think so. Okay. Or, or he thinks he does. It, it seems to me that he really genuinely feels that this is his only way to be heard and to be taken seriously. Mm. But by doing it, he puts himself into a point where he absolutely cannot be heard or taken seriously because then he is a terrorist. Yeah. And we yeah. don't negotiate with terrorists. It's just like rule number one. And what's lovely about this film is that everybody outside of that immediate battalion understands that. Yes. No one at any point speaks in advocacy for these children no. because they all understand how the world works. Especially these trained soldiers that we have been told are going on to go into school where you leave an officer they, these, they are going to be officers and you cannot at this point as soon as they make this this decision you cannot let them go without consequence yeah. you can't we then have the first meeting with the parents uh and we get this great scene between brian and his father yes. who is also a military officer but of a lower rank of course do you expect me to call you major yeah is, this is great it stuff is. particularly demonstrative of the bridge between the civilians and the military officers 
even the moment where Brian's father leads him away from the others, this is giving me a chance to talk to my son, <laughs> leads them away, like creating a physical gap yeah. between these two worlds and these two realms of experience, but then does not soften in his approach to what Brian is doing. No. He's, you're right, critical of Beish throughout this process. Mm -hmm. He's critical of what Brian is doing. Ends up striking him, ends up hitting him. Right. Brian gathers his dignity and returns inside. And we get the first of three beats where we are going to let people leave. We have the first moment where he right. says, people out there, they think you're hostages. If you want to go, go. And not one person stirs. Not one, yep. Night falls. We get the sense that we have reached this uneasy status quo, but... Of course we haven't because these boys have taken a school by force. Yes. So the National Guard turn up. Yes. That is an incredible piece of cinematography. I, it I sure is. It sure is. So striking. This is where we have the moment that we discussed earlier where Moreland gives the order, no one fires unless I give the word understood. And then we have West encountering the sentry who says, yeah. no, actually, David Sean said I can shoot anyone I like <laughs> as long as they're coming over the wall. Mm -hmm. So then we see the first kid leave. Yes, which is haunting. Haunting. Scene, yeah, absolutely. a really young kid who now they're surrounded by the National Guard. They've got all of this weaponry surrounding mm -hmm. them, pointed at them. And even though they've got their own, it just doesn't feel safe anymore. It isn't safe anymore. Well, and we also have the trucks driving by with recorded messages playing through the loudspeakers. Well, that's a question. Did you take that as recorded messages playing through the loudspeakers or the parents actually first. loaded into the backs of the trucks? At first I took it loaded in the backs of the trucks, but then mm -hmm. they were saying playing the tapes, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and they so are then, repeating. The last one that we yes. get is a recapitulation of the first one. I, I also took it as, wow, they're just driving the parents around with, with, with bullhorns, bull huh? Yeah, okay. which would probably have worked better, actually. Like, Maybe. I feel like if one of the moms had come to the gate and it been is like... oddly inhuman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. It, and, and it feels more manipulative, which of course it is. Right, and we do a great job through these sequences, I think, of putting us in the experience of these boys, of, yes. of really anchoring our our experience of these events. We do, and not even the parents, honestly, which is, which is interesting. I, I think uh, I certainly thought of it as a parent having young boys and thinking about, you know, what our culture teaches young boys about uh, their position yeah. in the world and their power in the world. Well, and finding that sense of fraternity, how valuable yes. and how dangerous that can be, right? We have seen that Absolutely. weaponized in the real world in a multitude of ways in, in recent years. And it's not a different mechanism. It's just the same mechanism occurring in different spheres. Yeah, there's not a big difference between the locker room on a airbase than the locker room in a junior high. You wish that there was, sure. but there isn't. Yeah. Or a message board in a shady corner of the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In any case, our first deserter is incredibly young. He yeah. looks about eight, even though we know that nobody there <laughs> is younger than 12, but they did a good job casting this kid, just leaping over the sandbags, shouting, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. I don't want to die. Yeah. And that's when we the the those outside begin to suspect that this is actually a group of child hostages which in a sense it is well we've had that implication made already in brian's meeting with his father he's already laid yes. out the idea that the other parents right lay that's out the true idea that. how that do we know you're true. not holding our my son would never take part in that no all of the children are there entirely voluntarily yeah one cracks though you're right and flees and we learned the following morning at muster that in fact Almost a dozen kids have yes. walked off in the night because, of course, they have. Of the smartest course. have left their posts. Yes. No <laughs> one, though, crucially, from uh, David Sean's company. It is at this point that we are introduced to the last great character in this film. This is when we get Colonel Kirby, the commanding officer so of great. this detachment of the National Guard, 
who is just fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, what a performance. This is, of course, the brilliant Ronnie Cox. You can't watch a movie from the 1980s or the early 1990s without <laughs> seeing Ronnie Cox. You can't watch a movie for much of the last 50 years without seeing Ronnie Cox. Beverly Hills Cop, of course. Uh, Total Recall, he's fantastic in. Oh. Very famously in Robocop. Absolutely definitive of that kind of that 80s movies. Mm -hmm. And he's maybe, maybe never better than in this film. Kirby is such a fantastically drawn character. Mm. None of his dialogue feels forced. None of it crucially feels oratorical the way that yeah. Beishas does crucially, earlier in the film. Absolutely. It feels so grounded, so honest, so gentle, but yes, also so firm. Mm -hmm. It is such a brilliant example of, yeah, exactly the kind of strong, empathetic soldiery yes. that we've been discussing all the way through this film. Yeah. No, he really makes it a point to tell Moreland that he is stuck in the middle between the governor's wishes because he is just a soldier who does what he is told. And, and th that's how it works. And that's Obeying how it... that civil authority. Exactly. Yeah. And trying to explain to Moreland, like, you have started something that you can't finish. Stop now. Because if I have to, I'm going to. I'm going to. And it's going to be bad for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just horrible. That night, the water is cut off. Tension is building. Mm -hmm. This is where Dwyer loses it. He begins his silly interview thing. Oh, it's unclear yeah. here how, to what degree he is play acting and to what degree this material is perhaps getting away from Champagne a little bit. Yeah. I, I do not have a handle on Dwyer through the sequence at I all. I don't either. As a character in general, I don't have a handle on Dwyer, which I yeah. think we're not supposed to because he's, he's muggle-born. He's, you know, <laughs> he's well, not from a military family. Only so half. Oh, his, his father was was an enrolled officer too, but they are crucially dead. He is from a different kind of domestic background as mm. well. It's implied a different economic background. It is implied, yeah. Than the rest of of the people, the rest of his peers, right? Who uh, are all the children of officers? I exactly. Suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Dwyer and Moreland get into a fist fight, which is only interrupted when the electricity is also cut off. And mm -hmm. boy, howdy, the National Guard—they have some dramatic timing. Because that's when a tank rolls up. Yes. A tank seems like a bit much. Are they at this point just trying to intimidate the children? Is that the idea, do you think? This is where it starts to get fantastical. So tensions are rising. A group of cadets is trying to start the emergency generator very carelessly with gas. And, and look... We obviously like this film. I think yeah, that's pretty yeah. fair to say. I think that this film is, is beautifully shot in but, large part. I yeah. find the application of violence to be very specific and harrowing. Mm -hmm. Giancarlo Esposito has the most dramatic and over-the-top flaming death. Yeah. It wasn't death, I think. He just got taken out. He seemed to be unconscious on the stretcher. But it's his possible. face was showing. Okay. In movies, if your face is not showing, you are dead. Well, he is removed from the proceedings. He's removed we from shall the not see him again. Yeah. So yeah. narratively, Narr narratively, <laughs> he in a sense, narratively passed on. <laughs> but this is great because this is the uh, this is the moment where we see Brian begin to change. Because when meeting again with Kirby, he says, "Okay, I only have one demand now. I will bring it yes. all down. We can stop this. I only have one demand. I need a victory so that this can end peacefully. I need to meet with Beish." Which is when Kirby tells us, of course, that Beish has died. Yes. In the world's most predictable turn. Right. But a turn that is nonetheless, I think, delivered in a fairly effective and, and compelling manner. Yeah. But but this puts Moreland in a really interesting position now because he feels that if he backs down, 
he has completely lost the respect of all of his men. Well, and he is now the torchbearer for all that Beish represented. Right. Beish could tell him to stand down and he could still preserve his honor and his dignity. He can't That's do that now really if he point. gives in. Yeah. This yeah. is where we get the great monologue from Kirby about Beish being a death seeker and about yes. what a soldier really fights for, what a soldier really lives for. And Moreland standing in opposition to that. Yeah. We get this... uh, also a terrible clunky line, though. It's like, death is only one thing. Bad. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it does stand nicely in contrast to the to, to, to like the romantic oratory. You, you're right. I, I hear what you're saying. Clearly what we're aiming for there is a kind of, uh, yeah, a kind of everyday punchy effective yeah. language that is not flowery. Right. But yeah, maybe, maybe a little flowery just, would just have elevated more. that. Just, just a little just more a flower. Little, just, just give it a just, little Just a little, a little bloom on that rose. Sure. <laughs> we then have the uh, memorial service for Beish in the rain. It's beautiful. Gorgeously, gorgeously mm. shot. We have the playing of taps, of course. And that night, the second tank pulls up. One of the young cadets, in an outright panic, runs for the gate, drops his weapon as he's running to safety. Mm-hmm. It accidentally discharges and fires into the ranks of the National Guard. And they, in return, open fire on the boy who is gunned down. The boy behind him, as a matter of fact, who is chasing after him. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Really upsetting. To me, not narratively satisfying. I do not. I certainly hope in a real world situation, this gun that went off fired up into the sky. So it's not like someone returned fire because the guy next to him just got shot. Somebody just got spooked. and Right. I think that's intentional, though. I think this is the film telling us that this is what happens when you have a lot of guns. Someone is going to make a someone mistake. Someone makes a mistake. And yeah. someone is going to, is going to be compelled yeah. to take action in response. That because this it's... is inevitable. Yeah. That's, that, for me, is what is so harrowing about it, is that this was always going to happen. Yeah. There was always going point. to be a moment. And it's not going to be David Sean choosing from the window to shoot at Kirby. It is going to be some dumb kid drops his gun. Yeah. And this is the consequence. This is what happens. These are the stakes. And when the stakes are this high, it is inescapable. Yeah. It's awful. It's so harrowing. It is awful. It is awful. Yeah. And they they treat it with the gravitas that it deserves. Yes. This is, I think, what redeems this part of the film, Mm. is that the film takes this event very seriously and plays it completely straight. Yes. And it gives Timothy Hutton a moment to really show his acting chops. That's true. That's true. Uh, we also get an interesting twist on these confrontations that we've had so far because the gates are open, the ambulance is allowed in to recover the body of the young man, and Kirby, standing in the yard, addresses not Moreland, but the massed ranks of this battalion. He mm-hmm. starts talking to the men, warning them, this is what is going to happen. Yes. If you persist. We are going to have to come in here. We're, we don't want to. No one wants this to be happening. But we can't make it stop. You can. Yeah. Dwyer goes in search of Moreland and finds him watching old film of Beish delivering yeah. just these endless speeches, and valorizing so the past, valorizing the doomed. Yeah. Like, uh, Using the exact same language, which I think is so important. It's, of it's course. rehearsed. Like these are the words that he says every time in this situation. Yeah. And so it, you lose that naturalism and humanity that you get from Kirby. And this is really the emotional climax of yeah. the story. This was always going to be where 
the fate of the few were decided. Mm. And our paths really are locked here, both by Dwyer on the one hand and by Sean on the other. What do you think of, of Sean Penn? In the, I'm just now realizing that perhaps it is confusing that we are switching between character I names know, and actor sorry. names. Yeah. And David Sean and Sean Penn do yeah. share, obviously, <laughs> one name. I hope that hasn't been confusing. As we would never call podcast. Sean Penn Sean, though. I, I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. <laughs> We're not that close. What do you think? What's you your said earlier, it was your boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of Sean Penn in this? I, I, I will put my cards on the table first. I will make mm-hmm. myself vulnerable here. I think he's actually at his best in this scene. Completely agree. Yeah. No, he's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. He's lovely. Equally, Timothy Hutton delivering just a knockout and incredibly adult performance. Yes. Just giving a real world weariness yeah. in these yeah. closing moments. Dwyer urges Moreland to declare victory, to just yeah. decide that they have won. This is like... Which is so interesting. Just declare victory is what he says. Just declare it. That is what your sense of honor demands. Yeah. But there are no terms here. You can't get the thing that you want. So just say that you just, it's not say that you've won, right? It's not go out and lie to the boys and tell them that we've won. It's decide Decide that you have won. Yes. Change the terms of this engagement and decide that you have won so that you can preserve your honor and we can all walk out of here. Which is also chilling because that's an option. That you can just say... I mean, kind of. In in this context, it is. Well, we have to ask, because of what happens to Brian Moreland, we have to ask, is it? Would he ever have recovered from this? No. He wouldn't have been able, no. obviously, no, 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 to continue no. his it's military more career. That they, yeah. it, it's more that they, they would believe that they could, I suppose. Right. In yeah, that, that moment, That would have been enough have... of the rhetoric that you could believe that right. you just Lied to himself the game. to save the lives of his men yeah. from the National Guard. They walk out in what is a phenomenally shot sequence. They walk out of this dark room into the, the coming dawn. You know, we've had this repeated beat from Kirby, from, from Ronnie Cox saying, come the dawn, come the dawn. Yeah. And here, the dawn is here. They walk out into it, calling out to everyone that it's over. Yeah. That everyone Stand needs down. to muster in the yard. Mm-hmm. It, it's done. The boys run. This is a Everyone's very excited, extended which is sequence great. Yeah. here. And that's basically, you see you know, the relief. kind of our last line of dialogue. We're, we're, we're just moving now into a much more emotionally powerful kind of impressionistic ending as we mm-hmm. move from the muster yard itself up to the window mm-hmm. where David Sean has shouldered his rifle and decides to go out in a blaze of glory, I guess. Yeah. It, I... I w- <laughs> I wish it was more motivated. I know, I know, I hear what you're saying about how, like, he's just the animalistic one and he just wants it all to end in bullets and death. Well, in glory, right? He he calls it beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. We talk all the time about characters having sufficient motivation. If you have enough motivation, you can justify, narratively speaking, any action. You can make a character do anything if that motivation is grounded enough, is deep enough, is big enough. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't know that we do that here, but I can see the shape of what we're going for. I'm just ultimately a little disinterested because at this point in the story, David Sean is just the hand of narrative justice. He is just the hand of tragedy taking action, right? He has to do this so that Moreland can pay the due price for his hubris. Yeah, yeah, it's just the, the the film has done such a nice job of showing the humanity of these boys to then give David Shaw none seems like a shame. 
I, I do see what you're saying. It just seems I, I, a little bit cheap. Again, you know, I'm yeah. going to defend this film on the grounds of intentionality. Sure, that, yeah. That is not an oversight. I think that is deliberate, mm-hmm. but I do see where you're coming from. I'm, th- I'm thinking of like how I would have changed it narratively to give him more motivation to, to make it make sense. And I'm wishing that that the, the, the boy who had been shot, Charlie, that the special relationship was not between him and Moreland, but between him and David Sean. So that way David could ah. feel like he was, you know, avenging the death of this young boy or something. I just wanted I, I wanted something to make him taking that machine gun into his hands, not just completely batshit crazy and insane. I see what you're saying there, and I do think that that is a more human-grounded kind of motivation, a more human-grounded yeah. kind of characterization. Which we gave everybody else. But I think you lose some of the iconicity there. I think you I lose know. some of the, the thematic power I'm, of I'm just... men like David Sean. And, you know, the world has men like David mm. Sean. There are just people like that who who want to pull the trigger for the sake of pulling the trigger, who want to burn it up. And... You're right, I think, that maybe this film is not the place to explore that kind of character. Mm. Maybe there's another way of approaching it that does preserve the very human complexity that we've, that we've brought to this text. Yeah, and how young they are, I suppose. That, too. It does feel, yes, you're right, perhaps one of the ways in which David Sean is most different from the other characters is that he is fixed. He's yeah. not changing. He's not growing. He doesn't have a future past this. That's a point. He's already reached all that he is ever going to be. Mm. It is an undeniably powerful end to a film that, if you're watching carefully, I think has really demanded a lot of you as an audience. Definitely. I am, (laughs) weirdly, this is not a feeling I have very often, but perhaps, you know, a little bit of this is coming off the back of Endless Love and seeing a a film that misunderstood its own text so egregiously. This film demonstrates in its final movement how completely it knows what it is doing. It is so sure-footed. It so fully delivers on the inescapable premise that yeah. it establishes in the first frame. This is an excellent example, I think. An incomplete example, as, you, as you've noted, but an excellent example of that kind of robust narrative, tragic craft. Yes. Yes. We should say, too, for those who didn't watch the film, um, that, of course, Moreland rushes up to the tower where David Sean is firing. He tries to stop him. He is caught in the crossfire, and both young boys are killed. And uh, it's Sean Penn's character. Dwyer. Left. Dwyer. Carries Moreland out. Yes. Carries Moreland Into out. Into the dawn light. In a really beautiful and moving sequence. Yeah. It's yeah. Very powerful stuff. And then we... And there's something powerful, too, in that no one carries Sean out. No. No. Like, no one believes that that kid was a hero or... But this is the irony, is that Moreland, in this last action, yes, it is, yes, it is tragic. Yes, he is paying the price for his actions. But, crucially... He is also dying exactly the kind of death that he would have wanted. Oh, he horrible. has finally got what he wanted. Yeah. And it is heroic because he will be remembered for ending this. He will be remembered for running back into the firefight. Mm. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it is. But it's also the end. There is a little formality before we wrap up our discussion on mm. TAPS, which is the big list of every Tom Cruise movie <laughs> ever. Uh, right now, let me double check. Number one is uh, uh, Endless Love. So weird. What do you think? Does Taps go above or below? Oh, hell yeah. Way above Endless Love. <laughs> Definitely. Do you think, perhaps this is the more interesting question, do you predict that Taps will be in the top half of the Tom Cruise filmography by the time we're Ooh, done? In the top half. I'm not going to hold you to this. Maybe. Just, just a gut check here. Maybe. I'm thinking maybe, maybe bottom the bottom of the top bottom half. Bottom of the top? Yeah. It's going to be in the middle. 
It doesn't sound as exciting when you say it's just going to be in the middle. But yeah. Yeah. It's it's a good film. For his second screen credit Difficult to be film. somewhere in the middle of his filmography, I think is very yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's true. Do you see in this performance who Tom Cruise will turn out to be? I do, very yeah. much. Yeah. As I said right at the beginning, this is an interesting example of the kind of work that we're going to see from Cruise. He is capable in this phase of his career of entering fully into character. This is, oh, yeah. it's obviously him. It's more him in a sense than Billy in Endless Love. Mm. It feels more cruisy because oh, it's just a more developed character. Interesting. But to me at least, yeah, th- this is an alternate version. If Tom Cruise hadn't been a movie star, if he had just been an actor, this is the kind of thing that I think he would have done more often. And it's not completely distinct from certain characters that we're going to get from him much, much later in his filmography. Mm. We are going to be talking about David Sean intermittently, but consistently through the entire run of this podcast. You're probably I predict. right. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I just never think, uh, I mean, I guess I just think of Tom Cruise always, yeah, as a twinkle charm leading man guy, even when he's the action hero or sure. whatever it is that he is now. Uh, and so it's it's hard to imagine these character roles that have no nuance and no the goodness. <laughs> I will say, I do think that Cruise is bringing more nuance to Sean than is on the page. I do think that that because he is still irrepressibly Tom Cruise, not fully formed yet, but he does have those moments, that very first interaction when he flips off Dwyer on the staircase, those moments when he comes in after uh, Moreland has been promoted and he's beginning the whole organized yeah. choreographed sequence in the hallway, <laughs> there is some charm there. There is something very light there. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that that stuff's on the page. I think that that is the cruise of it all. And I think that that is what we're going to see moving forward. Before we get to the topic of next week's show, mm-hmm. I'd like to take a moment to thank everybody for listening. This is the yes. first podcast that we've recorded since we launched The Last Star in Hollywood, and the response has been super exciting, you guys. Yes. It's been absolutely thrilling. It has been so great to connect with everybody on on all the social medias and through email and and. Basically, every time my phone has beeped for the last few days, I haven't felt the same sense of dread as I have for the last, I don't know, five or six years. Because Uh it's most often a wonderful person saying hi. And that's great. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you you would like to support The Last Star in Hollywood, you can head on over, of course, to Mm laststarpod.com or to our Patreon, patreon.com slash laststarpod, where you can get access to our monthly bonus episodes. Right now, over on that Patreon page, we are voting on the topic of our first month's bonus episode Mm -hmm. which is going to be a choice between let's see if i can remember this right off the top of my head the last starfighter fern gully the last rainforest indiana jones and the last crusade and the fourth one last action hero last action hero naturally it was on the tip of my tongue (laughs) (laughs) so you can head on over to the patreon page patreon.com slash last star pod pledge your support and decide what we are going to talk about in our bonus episode for October. Yep. That's coming up soon, in fact. We're going to have to uh, close yes. that poll pretty soon, I guess. Yes. Next week on Last Star Pod, Curtis Hansen's sex comedy, Losing It, from oh, 1983. No. A likely candidate <laughs> for the worst film in Tom Cruise's entire filmography. Oh. A 4.9 on the IMDb, the lowest of Cruise's entire career. But it's his first leading role, and we have to talk about it. We do. Except uh-huh. there is a wrinkle, and Ooh. you don't know this. Losing It was screened at a film festival in Columbia, South Carolina, in August of 1982. But its wide release didn't come until April of 1983, a full month after The Outsiders. <gasps> so technically, 
we could decide to do The Outsiders next week and do Losing It the week after. Ooh. I am putting this into your capable hands, Elizabeth. Oh, no. Which one would you like to discuss? The absolutely seminal tale of Oklahoma, yes. The Outsiders. Francis or, Ford Coppola. Or <laughs> a movie about it. a bunch of kids going it's to Tijuana. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be like, so bad. I mean, I, I feel like we have to just go by what are you what all a vegetables the first say. or a dessert first kind of girl? I don't eat dessert. I'm a there are lists, but I will eat only the French fries off my plate. There like. are lists which give either as the next oh, film in no. his filmography, depending okay. on whether you count the festival release yeah. in South Carolina. In that case, I'm going to go with the Outsiders. Wide release it is. All yes. right, let's go with the Outsiders. I'm so looking forward to doing that one. Uh, we'll wait for uh, losing it, which has got to be. It's got to be terrible. It's got to be so. There is a detail which might make you change your mind. Mm-hmm. If we do the Outsiders next week, that means that I have to do the improv trailer game, and oh. you're going to do the improv trailer game <laughs> for losing it. So maybe No, I want to hear your improv trailer for Outsiders. That sounds good. All right. Yeah. Especially because you've it. never seen it before. I've never seen it before. Wow. I've been saving it for exactly this moment. That's lovely. You so, could read the book if you wanted to. It's only a couple of days read. That's interesting. You've read the book extensively though. So, so I might times. just yeah. give you book duties and I'll come cold to the film. That might be an interesting uh, approach. Maybe I'll do yeah, a little okay. short bonus right. episode over on the Patreon. After I've watched the movie, I'll read the book. And then we can have a little book discussion, do a little book time over on the Patreon, a little bonus content over there. It's such a special book. I can't wait. I can't wait for this one. I'm so excited. I'm so looking forward to this. I hope I like the movie better than I did the first times I watched it because I watched it before when I was a teenager, probably uh, in love with the book. And the movie felt dated to me in a way that I didn't appreciate, but especially, you know, when I was a teenager myself. And... I just, I was too in love with the book. I was one of those, it's like, the book's so much better, <laughs> but now I'm interested to watch it, you know, having gone to film school sure. and seeing it as a Coppola film instead. So tune in next week for me defending and Elizabeth nitpicking Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> adaptation of S.E. Hinton's seminal novel, The Outsiders. You guys, thank you so much for listening. This has thank been you. a very long episode. Yes. It's been a really fun conversation. I'd love to hear more from all of you. You can find all of our contact information over at laststarpod.com. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. 